This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's episode is dedicated to Patricia Bornwagner, who has been a regular patron for a while and recently upped their pledge to become a super patron, for which we are very grateful. Patricia's fake death will involve a lawnmower, sawdust, chopsticks and two gallons of beetroot smoothie. Thank you, Patricia, and we hope you enjoy your new life as a biscuit maker in San Marino. So... Kozlowski was a specialist in monster prosthetics for American B-movies. He was, yes. And if we are ever reunited, we must all get together, you, me, Kozlowski, Amelia, Joey and Salvatore, with a crate of popcorn and a bucket of Pepsi and watch Killer Rabbit's Revenge. (laughs) That would be nice. Yes. What about you? Hmm? You also worked in Hollywood? Uh, no, no. So, what were you doing during that time? I was getting very well acquainted with the bottom of the sea. Excuse me? For three years I lived in a submarine. I don't know why anything surprises me anymore. But I thought you never leave Kozlowski's side. In 1945 we got separated during the Ardennes Offensive. I ended up in Antwerp and through a string of highly unlikely and rather amusing circumstances, actually, I hitched a ride on a submarine with a Pole called Jan and a Swede called Olaf. But you spent three years on that thing? How did you manage that? I mean, you barely last three hours in the office without getting bored. Sometimes even boredom is a price worth paying. What? You really can still surprise... I never thought I'd hear you say that. Well, when it comes to escaping Nazis... Oh. Well, yes, of course. So you were fleeing the war? Yes. Besides, life on the sub wasn't all that bad. I mean, Olaf taught me everything I know about Tiddlywinks, and I have Jan to thank for my proficiency in ballet. We also used the opportunity to retrieve Martha's plane from the bottom of the Pacific, and... Wait! You set off in 1945? Correct. That's the year the war ended. What were you doing hiding out for another three years? Well, we were... rather cut off. Meaning? We re-emerged in 1947 in Portsmouth in desperate need of food and supplies, half expecting to find Britain under the swastika. You mean you didn't realise the war had ended? Well, how could we? There was zero communication entering or exiting the Argonaut. That's our sub. We had done everything to ensure we were entirely off the grid. (laughs) Well, I suppose I shouldn't judge. Must have been a scary time. 
It was. Do you want to tell me about it? You know, the most scared I've ever been was when Martha's plane crashed. Oh, the Amelia Earhart disappearance. I'm dying to hear about that one. No, no. No, not that. That was very controlled. I'm talking about her second crash. Her real crash. When she was shot down in Italy. Oh. What happened? You want me to tell you? That's why we're here. It's not very jolly. In fact, it's a rather somber story. I'm here for those two. I could tell you the submarine story instead. It's much funnier. Yes, but I think you want to tell me about Martha. You're right. I think I do. Alvina, thank you. For what? For being such a good listener. Oh. Well, that's easy with a storyteller like you. Well, I appreciate it. Might be the last time I get to tell these stories, you know. Yes. Time for a story. Time for a story. Hmm. Project by Philip Thorne and Ostein Braga with music and sound direction by Frederick Baden. Episode 61 Martha, 1944. How is she? Unconscious again. Oh. Well, here's the flask of water. I have boiled it. Uh, just put it on the table, please. Did you get to speak with her? I did. That's good. In case she... Does not live. Yes. I can sit with her, if you, if you want. Oh. Am I needed for surgery? Not right now. I, I just thought maybe you needed some rest. Then I will stay with her. Oh, of course, Colonel. Um. You have other soldiers to see to, do you not? The 6th Battalion just came back from Camp Leone. Some badly hurt. We are struggling out there, Colonel. Then go sit with them. It's just... We don't get many women here. Let alone one who is a pilot. I, I just wanted to spend some time in her presence. She's a hero. Ah, so are you, Lieutenant. Please, call me Prudence. We are all heroes, Prudence. Now go and hold the soldier's hand. I am sure he will appreciate that. Well, I'll leave you two alone. Let me know if you need anything. I will. Martha. You brave, brave soul. Here we are. Halfway up the Italian leg, 
trying to give Hitler a kick in the shin. Yet at the moment, that seems like all we are doing. A small kick against a fascist leather boot. Seeing you like this is harder than you think. I wanted to say this to you whilst you were still awake, but... You slipped away before I had the chance. Martha, you are part of the Brotherhood now. Do you know that? I know you do not like that word, Brotherhood. I understand. But being part of the project does not carry the same weight. So whether you like it or not, you are one of the brothers, Martha. Less than a decade, you have taken up such a significant place in our lives that losing you feels like losing a sister. But I respect your wishes, Martha, which is why I wanted to tell you a story. One I have not yet told you, but which seems to be just the right story to tell at this moment. So, in case you can still hear me, I will tell it to you. There is always time for a story. I grew up in Tyre, a port town in the merchant state of Phoenicia. My father was a dyer, dyeing fabrics with the famous deep purple that only Phoenicians knew how to make. Phoenician purple had been around for a thousand years. It was the most expensive dye there was, only afforded by queens and kings, princesses and princes, and the very, very richest of merchants. It was shipped to the farthest reaches of the world and kept the Phoenician people alive and prosperous. But what the world did not know, what was kept hidden from the queens and the kings and the princesses and the princes, was that Phoenician dye did not exist anymore. For years they had not been able to make more and instead dyed the fabrics with Tyrian dye. Now, Tyrian dye was also expensive. It was hard to extract and to produce. You see, it came from the glands of the murex, a marine snail that lived only off the coast of Phoenicia. But if you think, why should the princesses and princes not be happy with a dye extracted from such a rare creature? It is only because you do not know where the original Phoenician dye came from. The original dye was made from the brightest crimson you could imagine. A color only ever seen in nature in the feathers of the phoenix. That is right, Phoenician dye was made from phoenix feathers. Phoenixes were rare, but they existed, and they lived, of course, in Phoenicia. A dyer who managed to capture a phoenix, huh, 
he was a lucky man. He had provided for his family for eternity. Because you do not need to breed phoenixes, do you? You do not even have to feed them. Folklore has it, phoenixes do not die. Or, or rather, they do, but they come back again. When they die, they burn, and from the ashes they rise again, right? The phoenix is a symbol of immortality. But what if that is not true? Now remember, being alive is not the same as thriving. I am sure you can imagine it, Martha. Some dyers treated their phoenixes badly, because they knew even if the phoenix starved to death at dusk, it would be back again at dawn. But those phoenixes grew thin and sickly. Eventually their plume faded, and the bright crimson they once exhibited was reduced to a pallid, dusty pink. As time passed, the phoenix would burn more and more often, and one day the ashes would be taken by the wind, and the phoenix would rise no more, leaving that family desolate, forcing them to scavenge for snails in the shallow waters by the dock. Other dyers would treat their phoenixes well. The phoenix would be the pride of the household, Loved like a member of the family. Those houses did well for generation upon generation. <sighs> but in every family, a greedy child will one day come along. One who thinks the amount of dye the bird produces is not enough. One who thinks the bird does not deserve the best place at the table or the best serving of the day's food, but that they do. And once a greedy child is born and a greedy child grows up and a greedy child inherits the family business, from that day onward, you would see a dyer's house in decline. Until one day, the ashes are taken by the wind. This was another secret only known to the Phoenicians. Phoenixes can die. Our family had a phoenix, the last one entire. Many families claimed they had one, but I suspect it was the last one in all of Phoenicia. It was the sun we all revolved around. And when my grandfather died, my uncle, who was the oldest son, took over the family business. And then our luck changed. By the time I started as an apprentice to my uncle at the age of 11, the bird would no longer burn once a century or once a decade or even once a year but once a week. When I was 12, we saw the phoenix burn every night until one day its ashes flew away on the wind. We were bankrupt. 
My uncle fled in shame. No one ever heard from him again, and my father took over his place. Now, my father was an ambitious businessman. He wanted to pull our name out of the sand and make it great again. But he knew that the only way he could do that was if we regained what we had lost. We needed a phoenix. Like me, my father did not believe anyone in Phoenicia owned any phoenixes anymore. We had traveled far and wide selling our fabrics and had never once come across a fabric with the hue that ours once used to have. But there were rumors going around that there was still one phoenix in the world, that Prince Chao of Qi still had one. So my father sent me to get it. At the time, Prince Chao was at war with his brothers. So my journey, on horseback, on donkey, on foot, begging for rides with traveling merchants and ships, transporting goods along the rivers, finally brought me right into the heart of ancient China, where rice fields had turned to battlefields. I arrived finding wounded soldiers dying in trenches, others being nursed back to health in overfilled tents. Huh. Well, very much like here, like now. War never seems to change. I made my way towards the front and found the officer's camp. Prince Chao's tent right at the center. His tent was heavily guarded, of course, but I was a slender child and very good at hiding. I crawled in the tall grass all the way up to the prince's tent and peeked under the canvas. There he was, the mighty prince, with his precious phoenix at his side. But oh, it was a sad, sad sight. The phoenix had lost nearly all of its color. Feathers were falling out. It slumped its head against the bars in its, yes, gilded cage and seemed to me to be crying. I waited there until nightfall when everyone was asleep apart from the night guards. They were watching the front entrance to the tent and did not see the little boy slipping under the canvas wall at the back. I tiptoed over to the phoenix, sleeping in its cage right next to Prince Chao's bed. The prince was snoring loudly, and every time he let out a sound, I could make a move. Open the cage, lift the bird into my knapsack, sneak back to the wall. But then I thought, if this is the last phoenix in the world, it is invaluable to the prince. He will come after me, and he will not stop until he finds me, unless... So, I went over to the fireplace in the middle of the room where the fire had gone out. I brushed some ashes into the palm of my hand and scattered them inside and outside of the phoenix's cage, 
Then I locked the cage back up again, tiptoed back to the wall, and ran. I ran as silently yet as fast as I could, and did not stop until dawn. Now I was far, far away from the front. I sat down at the riverside, exhausted, and rested. For the first time since stealing the bird, I opened my knapsack. There the bird was, looking straight into my eyes. As the bird looked at me, I heard a voice in my mind, and I knew it was the phoenix talking to me. Where are you taking me? it asked. I have come to take you to Phoenicia, I thought. Home, the bird said. How wonderful! I have not been home for centuries, and I was hoping to see the crystal clear waters and the green Phoenician gardens abounding with flowers of all colors one more time before I die. You are dying? I asked. Can you not see the state of my plume? the bird replied. I can. I only have one feather left with a streak of crimson, and even that is fading. I am taking you to my father, I thought. He will give you all the food you want, every medicine known to man. He will nurse you back to health. Will he give me my freedom? the bird asked. You will live in the most wonderful home, I thought, far away from the battlefield, with happy children running around, singing songs. Will he give me my freedom? the bird repeated. And when I didn't reply, the bird asked, Are you a dyer's son? Yes, I thought. Well, then, the bird said, Your father is not likely to set me free, is he? A tear rolled down my cheek. Then another one. I cried for the poor bird. It had been in captivity for centuries, unable to fly anywhere, perhaps unable to fly at all. I am not my father, I thought, and I am certainly not my uncle. I can make my own decisions. Listen, honorable Phoenix, I will take you to Phoenicia, but before we reach Tyre, I shall let you go. I will give you your freedom so you can see the shore and the gardens and the flowers one more time before you die. The bird looked at me, and I looked back into its eyes, drying my tears, but never looking away. Then, after the longest of times, the bird spoke again. I owe you my thanks, it said. Perhaps your father could have nursed me back to health for a while. Perhaps not. My life is very far gone, but that matters not. I have lived for eons, 
and I have seen everything there is to see. What matters is that I get to choose where I fly, when I take off, and when I land, and on what rocks I want to sit when my last hour comes. Now that I will get to see my home one more time, I can die in peace. You have given me a gift greater than you can imagine. Selflessly and with great personal sacrifice, I am sure your father will not be happy when you return empty-handed. So, I will give you a gift in return. When we reach Phoenicia, before we part ways, take the last of my feathers that still has a speck of crimson on it. Hold it to your heart for three days, never letting go. When the sun rises on the third day, I will have lain a path between your heart and your eyes on which love can travel. What do you mean? I said. I do not understand. You saw me and cried for my pain, said the bird. So, from that moment on, when you have held my feather to your heart for three days, your tears will have the power of healing. Uh, Prudence, are you not holding a wounded soldier's hand? There is someone here to see you, Colonel. I do not want to be disturbed. I think it is important. Is it Major General Lucas? No, a man who just arrived says his name is Sir Hubert Hathaway III. He came! Well, he is waiting for you outside. Can you sit with her? Of course. It is an honor. Uh, thank you, Prudence. Kozlovsky, it's so good to see you. It is good to see you too, Hubert. Oh, please. It's Arthur. I thought your name was Hubert. My mother called me Hubert. I go by Arthur these days. It's my middle name. Ha ha ha! Oh, Arthur. I did not think you would make it. The telegram said Martha was injured. I dropped everything and set off. I was holding a cup of cocoa at the time. I'll have to go sweep the floor when I get back. Here at the front, you can drop as many cups as you want, and none of them break. You get very used to water having a distinct taste of metal. Yes. How are you holding up? I'm doing well. I get to operate every day on the most interesting injuries. I had a soldier the other day whose arm had been so... No, 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 please, please, um, don't tell me. I'm, I'm glad there are people in the world who find broken limbs intriguing enough to want to operate on them. I am, but, um, I'm fine sticking to using corn syrup for blood and snapping a piece of celery to mimic the sound of breaking bone. And tell me, how is Operation Dead Eagle coming along? Faking people's deaths when they're not in on it is harder than I thought. So, progress is slow? I am sorry to hear that. Out here at the front, the fear that the Nazis will develop a nuclear bomb is very real. Especially if we are doing well. If we're doing well? Why? Huh. The more desperate Hitler gets, the more the chances increase of him using such a weapon. Oh, not to worry. I said it was hard. 
Not impossible. I am, after all... The best in the business. <laughs> German nuclear scientist number one drowned in heavy water. Scientist number two trampled by Nazi parade. Scientist number three crushed by falling swastika. Scientist number four flattened by Panzerkampfwagen. <laughs> and number five had a lethal allergic reaction to sauerkraut. <laughs> all of them are safely deposited in Alaska with new identities as wildlife conservationists. Under strict supervision, of course. You know, most of them are quite happy to get out of Germany, to be honest. But one of them... Let's just say he gets grizzly watch more often than the others. That is good news. Yes, yeah, not for the grizzlies. <laughs> the man is as thin as a stick. Hardly counts as an appetizer. <laughs> is she... Is she in there? Yes. I, I don't know if I want to see her like that. Lying in a row of wounded soldiers and... She is alone. What, a whole tent to herself? For now. If there is another airstrike, she will have to share. Is she conscious? She was, but only for a while. Did you speak to her? I told her a story. True story. Do you mean factually true or emotionally true? Either. It was only the latter. Well, that's the most important thing. How bad is it? I do not know. You don't know? I do not possess the power of predicting the future. Yes, but you can assess her condition as a doctor. Her condition is very poor. She was shot down. Yes, all right. What happened exactly? Martha was sent to retrieve an officer who was caught behind enemy lines. Sergeant McCreever, an American. He was captured by the Nazis four days ago. He escaped and managed to get a message to us. Martha flew in under the cover of darkness, retrieved McCreever and flew him out. Everything seemed to have gone to plan when suddenly there was enemy fire. Oh no. The front of the plane took several hits and she had no option but to attempt an emergency landing. Oh dear. She nosedived into a field and well, now she's here. I have removed the shrapnel and patched her up but there are limits even to my skills. What about the officer? Sergeant McCreever. He's in that tent over there. Nothing but a broken leg and a light concussion. So, all in all, the crash wasn't that bad? The cockpit was smashed beyond recognition. Oh. I fear she will not survive. Well, we can fix that. No. Why not? Just give her patience. You gave her some, right? Right? Kozlovsky, did you or did you not give her patience? Hubert, keep your voice down, please. You didn't. What? Why ever not? It is her choice. Yes, but we have to at least offer it to her. 
she might never gain consciousness again. All the more reason to make an executive decision. I will not do that. Why not? Because she does not want it. What do you mean? I already offered it to her. When she was awake. So you didn't just tell her a story? Of course not. We discussed patience. And... And you're saying she refused? Yes. Why? Why would she do that? She... Did she know she was dying? She had a better understanding of her situation than anyone. Then why did she refuse? Do you remember the story about the phoenix? Which one? I mean, I, I, I can't take any more of your phoenix stories. Listen, you and I would never have joined the war effort if it wasn't for Martha. We would have run away like we always do. We would never have come up with Operation Dead Eagle and you would never have ended up as a field surgeon. Now don't tell me this doesn't feel worthwhile. Of course it does. That is not what this is about. Not what this is... Without Martha, we would never have negotiated a 50-year immunity with the British government. 50 years! Think about the opportunities that gives us. We are forever grateful to Martha. Everything we have now is thanks to that woman in there. And now you are saying she shouldn't be a part of that? Yes. Death takes people away. But we don't have to let that happen. How would you like it if someone forced you to do something you did not want to do? What, like die? Then I'd drink some patience, thank you very much. Imagine the opposite scenario. I know Martha wants to live. Of course she does! But wanting to live is not incompatible with allowing death to take its course. Oh. All humans have a lifespan, Hubert. You can respect that or not. We chose not to. She is choosing differently. There is enough for three people plus clients. I am not arguing that our supply is short. She saved us, Itobal. I have not used that name for centuries. Arthur and Itobal. Caught on a desolate island. We would have lived. There is a difference between living and thriving. Isn't that what you say when you tell your Phoenix story? Which one? She saved us. Now it is our turn to save her. Not if she does not want us to. We pay her our respect by honoring her wishes. So, so what? So, so, so that's it? She says no, just like that. It is far easier to start something than it is to finish it. Yes, she has said that to me many times. Whenever I come up with a disappearance she thinks is too extravagant, she says that. It is far easier to start something than it is to finish it, Arthur. And then she'll go and finish it for me. She repeated it tonight. Yes, well, what did she mean by it? I think she meant that starting your life is easier than allowing it to finish. Oh, so she was criticizing us for choosing to live. Did you expect anything else from her? 
Ah, Martha, always brutally honest. Well, if she was touting old sayings of hers, did she repeat this one? Adventure is worthwhile in itself. She did not. But she is of that opinion, is she not? I mean, she's said it many times, and it seems apt right now, doesn't it? Does it? The adventure of life. The, the adventure of drinking a magic potion. Surely adventures that are worthwhile in themselves. Context, Arthur. The context is saving her life. Martha and I had the conversation, Arthur. I told her about patience, how it works. I said that if she wanted to start taking it, I have enough for all three of us. That you and I had wanted to tell her about it for some time and offer it to her. But then the war broke out and we never got round to it. Did you explain that she could also just take it this once? Like our clients, yes. If she wanted to pull through this one rough moment. She called that a slippery slope. <laughs> then we talked for a while about death. What we think it really is. It's unnecessary. That's what it really is. Then, out of nowhere, she said, Courage is the price that life exacts for granting peace. The soul that knows it not knows no release from little things. <laughs> I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Neither do I. I think all it boils down to is this. Do we grant Martha's wishes, or do we not? Respect. Yes. Even if you don't understand. Yes. Right, well, um, I guess I'll, um, <clears throat> go in there then. To say goodbye. I have to get going soon. I have a death by Lederhosen to orchestrate. Should I come in with you? Yes, please. Colonel. Colonel Kozlowski. What is it, Prudence? She... she... she woke up. We must see her. Right away. Oh, you can't go in. Why not? Well, she is... Is she in pain? I'm not embarrassed by her grimaces. I can administer pain relief. No, no, she is just a... Uh, actually, she is indecent. Indecent? Indecent? She's getting dressed. She's out of bed? She's feeling a lot better. I should go back in and help her, though. She isn't at all steady on her feet yet. I'll let you know when you can come in. So, um, what does this mean? I... I do not know. Koslovsky! It probably means that she will pull through. Oh, oh thank oh, heavens. I cannot believe oh. it. Oh, Koslovsky, you're such a genius, I could kiss you. She pulled through. Oh, she went ahead right. and pulled through. Oh. Oh. oh, good Lord. God, she had me worried there for a moment. Arthur. Yes. Are we in agreement? Hmm? 
we will never try to extend her natural lifespan. Not unless she asks for it. Yes, 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 we are in agreement. And the same goes for anyone we might offer patience to in the future. Yes, of course, yes, it shall be their choice whether I like it or not. She is ready for you. Good. Now, let us go see to her. Oh, let's. Oh, I think this calls for a toast. I actually have got a bottle of Veuve Clicquot with me that I managed to smuggle into Germany, and then out of Germany again, and then into Hungary for a little bit before I... Um... I do not believe you have held on to the same bottle of Veuve Clicquot for that long. Well, I might have exchanged it for new bottles along the way. <laughs> oh, God, do you know what passes for champagne in Hungary these days? Oh, it's disgusting. Honey tastes so it's just it's like a cat peed on it. Stay tuned for the epilogue, but first the credits. This episode was written by Einstein Braga, directed by Philip Thorne and Einstein Braga, with story and audio editing by Philip Thorne. Music and sound design by Frederick Barden. The episode featured Hemi Yeroham as Kozlovsky, Julia C. Thorne as Alvina, Alan Bergen as the interviewer, Lydia Orange as Prudence, and coming up, Aaron King as Mia Fox, and Jordan Cobb as Jackie Williams. Production assistance by Marty Patsival and graphic design by Anders Pedersen. There is just one more episode of season five, part one left. If you want to help us make part two, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Your support is how we are able to pay everyone who works on the show. So if The Amelia Project has brought you joy, if you like our stories and want us to keep telling them, if you think an episode is worth the price of a cup of cocoa, then we'd be so grateful if you'd consider making a running contribution of $2, $5 or more per full new episode we release. You can find out how to do that on ameliapodcast.com by going to support the show. Thank you to all of you who are already part of our Patreon community and a shout out to our super patrons. That's Heat312, Sigrid, Rodney Dulligy, Kevin Rowland, Sophia Anderson, Jem Fiddick, Alban Asant, Amelie and Allison, Stephanie Weitenhiller, Rafael Eduardo Vifas Verastaki, Ashlyn Brand, Allison Throw, Patricia Bornwagner, Megan Mighty, Dr. Insanity, Bryce Godmer, Grace Column, Cliff Heisinger, Michael West, and Tom Putnam. More info on ameliapodcast.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And now, the epilogue. So we decided you have to choose if you want to take it. And Martha chose not to. Patience. That's the liquid in the vial. Yes. And you're saying it's some sort of life elixir. You make it sound so crude, as if it is a magic potion out of a paperback fantasy novel. But yes, essentially, a life elixir is what it is. Holy mother. Oh, bravo. You have a drug that can make you live forever. But Amelia Earhart chose not to take it. Neat detail. It also happens to be the truth. 
Because that would explain why she's no longer around, wouldn't it? It would, yes. You know what I'm lacking right now? More gummy bears? A warmer jacket? Can you guess, Jackie? Um... Patience. I have run out of patience. Ah, pun. Mia Fox, you have wit. Oh, this has been fun so far, hasn't it? The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hi, folks. Let me see if I can sum up Midnight Burger in about 25 seconds. Really, Big Monster? Zero irony. Pardon me, Gloria. Might my husband and I have a word? The radio is talking to me. So this is how it ends. Eaten by wolves in space. There's a pocket dimension in the deep freeze. This is the stupidest dystopia we've ever been to. What the hell is that? Because you're having a cigarette? In 415 million BC? Where are we? Space? Can you narrow that down? The bad part? Ava! Yeah, that didn't work at all. At the nexus of all things, there is a diner. Look for Midnight Burger on your favorite podcasting app, or just go to weopenat6.com.